It is the 1st of February 1919, Saturday morning. You're disturbed from your sleep by heavy rain. The pattering in the window sounds like a distant army marching in your mind. You're sure you can hear someone practicing the bagpipes somewhere too. Your eyes open heavily as the rain gets louder and louder and louder until the sound of the distant army marching on your window is the sound of actual boots on the actual street and you pull the yellowed netting aside to see hundreds, maybe even thousands of troops marching towards the city centre. As many as 10,000 troops are in Glasgow to quell Bolshevik violence. Somewhere in Whitehall, someone is terrified of a communist revolution. In the streets, barbed wire is being laid. Sandbags are being thrown down, machine gun nests are set up, six tanks are on their way from England. On that cold Saturday, Glasgow doesn't look much different to the war-shattered towns that many Glaswegian men would have left behind in France just a few months ago. From Be Quiet Media, this is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. It is the 20th of October, 1714. It is King George I's coronation day, and His Majesty has got the fear. Word has reached him that there are riots in towns throughout England, on what should be a day of national rejoicing. Unfortunately for George, not everybody's mad keen on having a Hanoverian Protestant king, and the Tories have been whipping up trouble for him and his Whig government since it was decided that he'd take the throne in 1710. There had been five years of riots in the lead-up, and this was the last straw. You see, there wasn't much he could do when a menacing group of 12 or more people kicked up a rammy. It was almost impossible to prosecute them all, and if you couldn't do that, then it might make your life difficult if they kicked up a rammy somewhere else later. What a good authoritarian ruler needed was a way to make being part of a riot punishable by immediate death. So pretty much the first thing the king and his ministers did was get the quill out and write an act for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies. The law was passed in 1714 and came into effect less than a year later in 1715. The idea was pretty simple. If a town official thought a group of people might be preparing for a spot of organised lariness, then that official could read a proclamation that made the gathering illegal and absolved the government and town officials of blame for the consequences if the crowd didn't disperse. Smart thinking. Our sovereign lord the king chargeth and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the act made in the first year of King George for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies. God save the king! Or queen. In other words, go home, or we'll batter you in the name of the king, or queen. Whoever read the riot act aloud had to follow the exact wording of the proclamation. Several convictions that took place after the riot act had been read were later overturned because some part or other of the proclamation had been missed out. It was usually God save the king, or queen. So we've been about for a year, and you're probably aware that the best way to tell people that you like the show is to physically tell someone that you like the show 
um, that can be a bit weird, it can be a bit awkward, so what I would suggest is the next time you're in a lift with five or more people is to shout out randomly, I really like the Scotland podcast, it's about Scottish history and it's not very long, and then get off the lift immediately. It is Friday 31st of January 1919, lunchtime for what it matters since most of the city is out on a general strike. A colleague will later describe Sheriff Mackenzie as being in a highly excitable state as he looks out at more than 20,000 people rammed into Glasgow's George Square. The newspaper said there were more than 70,000 people in total out on strike across the city, and everyone in the city chambers was feeling pretty jumpy. Two leaders of the striking workers, Neil McLean MP and Davy Kirkwood, are inside the city chambers, hearing the response to the workers' petition for a shorter working week. The others, Manny Shinwell and Willie Gallagher, are outside, addressing the assembled masses in the square as a tram rolls in, trying to keep to its route. But 25,000 people-ish, no one was doing a headcount, blocked its path. Its bell sounded above the tumultuous crowd and furious people, angry at the sudden introduction of a giant electric bus into an already crowded situation, lost the heat a wee bit and began trying to impede its progress. That's when things kicked off. The police, there were only about 200 of them, charged the crowd and began indiscriminately beating people with their truncheons. The crowd fought back, pushing the outnumbered police back. Sheriff Mackenzie was out like a shot, with the riot act clutched in his hand. This was his moment to impose law and order on the huddled masses of the Glaswegian working class. This would put them in their place. He stormed onto the steps and proudly unfurled the paper. Our sovereign lord the king chargeth and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations. If you throw a bottle just the right way, it whistles a wee bit as it flies through the air. If you aim it right, you might even hit the sheriff of Glasgow, sending him to the deck and the riot act to the wind. Things had been tense for months. During the First World War, the banks of the River Clyde were a cacophony of industry as men and women worked around the clock to churn out the unfathomable amounts of munitions needed to fight a mechanised war. But after the war ended in November 1918, men coming home from the front were unable to find work, while those who had found employment on the Clyde during the war years were irked at still having to work a 57-hour week after the insatiable demand for killing machines had disappeared. The Clyde Workers' Committee, a group of shop stewards who stood up for workers' rights on Clydeside, and the Clydeside Independent Labour Party saw the solution as being a 40-hour working week. That would provide a better standard of living for those in work, and enough hours to provide jobs for those returning from the front. The captains of industry didn't agree. The CWC called a strike, demanding a change to a 40-hour week for all workers on the Clyde. 70,000 people joined a four-day strike and the CWC and ILP submitted a petition to the council with their demands. On the 29th of January, representatives of the Clyde Workers' Committee met with the Lord Provost, asking him to deliver their message to Parliament. 
They informed the provost that drastic action would be taken if their demands were not heard. This was not barricade building talk. They were planning more widespread picketing. If the strike has not been settled by the end of this week, we would not hesitate to stop every tram car, shut off every light, and generally paralyse the business of the city. That's what brought 25,000 people to the steps of the city chambers on that Friday lunchtime. A petition. A request. Asking for fairer working conditions and hours for people who had given their youth and their innocence on the battlefields of Belgium and France in the name of the king or something. Many of Glasgow's police force were still called up to the army and still on active military duty. They weren't an effective deterrent to anyone trying to start a riot. By the time the fighting started and the iron railings that were once on George Square were being pulled up to make makeshift defences against police baton charges, the powers that be weren't thinking about the king. They were thinking about his Russian cousin, who had been shot in a basement by communist revolutionaries less than two years earlier. The establishment were jumpy. A Bolshevik uprising could happen here. It could be happening right this second. McLean and Gallagher are arrested, but are allowed to try and disperse the crowd. It works. For a bit. The pitched battles start to spread out across the city, and the rest of the day and through the night is fighting and looting, and there are significant injuries, and Glasgow erupts with the same chaotic energy that many of the unemployed returning from France would have known all too well. The war cabinet were notified the second fighting kicked off, but in truth, they'd known for days that the Lord Provost might request military assistance. The troops came north to protect infrastructure and keep things running, supplementing the emergency services which were depleted by the war. They would also scare the rioters off the street, but that was just a nice side effect for the powers that be. The only way the army could actively engage with the populace was if the war cabinet declared martial law. They hadn't. They wouldn't. They didn't even discuss it. It is Saturday morning, and you weave your way through troops on the streets of Glasgow. As you get closer to the centre, some of them are warming their hands by fires, others are playing cards, some are even posing for photographs. Tanks would arrive on Monday, but they would be stationed in the cattle market and never brought out into the streets. The rioting was over, but the army remained until the end of the general strike. They were completely gone two weeks later. People will romanticise the story for a century, embellishing the tale with their own details and flourishes. But Bloody Friday, the Battle of George Square, whatever you want to call it, was just a police riot, not a military intervention. The official statistics list 19 police officers and 34 strikers injured. There were no fatalities. The leaders of the movement and eight others were put on trial for their supposed role in inciting a riot. Only Manny Shinwell and Willie Gallagher were convicted. Shinwell got six weeks and Gallagher received five months. Willie Gallagher went on to serve as the communist MP for West Fife from 1935 to 1950. Shinwell went on to become a minister in Labour and wartime coalition governments 
before eventually accepting a peerage and becoming active in the House of Lords before his death in 1986, at the age of 101. The Riot Act itself was only repealed in 1973, 259 years after it was first passed. Since rioting itself was no longer punishable by death, it made the whole thing a bit redundant, since the idea of speedy and effectual punishment for rioters is to fix bayonets, draw rapiers, or load machine guns, and send them to meet their maker. The 70,000 workers who had come out on strike eventually agreed to a concession, which would see them work a mere 47 hours per week. A bloody communist uprising in Glasgow was a very real threat to the establishment. But really, all the workers wanted were fair hours and security for their families. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. Thank you to Dr. Gordon Barclay and Sarah Kelly for their support on the original version of this episode. The Human Fialka Cipher, Mitch Bain, makes the music for every episode of Scotland, and you can check out more of his amazing work by searching out Mitch Bain Music on Facebook. Paul Houlihan was reading The Riot Act. You can find out more about the show on our website, thisisscotland.co, and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scotland, Scottish History Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.